From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, September 20th, and you're listening to the HPS Macrocast. I'm Michael Steele, a partner here at Hamilton Place Strategies, sitting in for Tony Fratto, and I'm, I'm joined by John Fagan and Brendan Walsh from Markets Policy Partners. So the Tony is traveling today, so I'm sitting in for him, uh, which means that the average uh, familiarity with the markets and overall intelligence of this conversation is going to take a real nosedive, um, but hopefully the perspective of someone who went to journalism school twice because he couldn't do math will be, uh, will be helpful in maybe in, you know, dumbing down this conversation and making it a little more illuminating. So let's, let's start with kind of the big news in markets the past couple of weeks. The Fed has cut rates uh, for the second time this year. Uh, guys, are we looking, does this mean we are headed into a recession? <laughs> well, we hope not. And uh, so on Wednesday, the Fed had their meeting. And um, kind of since the meeting, the, the market reaction has been relatively muted. And from the Fed perspective, that's exactly what they want. Right. They basically delivered what the market was expecting. So they cut uh, the, the rate from uh, uh, 2% to 2.5%. They have a 25 uh, basis point uh, rate, uh, band that they kind of try to keep it in. So now we're... Um, they cut it by 25 basis points, a quarter of a point. So now we're at 1.75 to uh, 2%. Uh, also, within the, the statement, they uh, they justify the need for uh, the, the lowering of the rate uh, by setting the implications of global developments for the economic outlook, as well as muted inflation pressures. So definitely still calling out towards the uh, the Chinese trade war. Right. And uh, But this one, actually, below the surface, it was a little more um, confrontational or difficult. Not, I wouldn't say confrontational. Uh, but we had three uh, Fed presidents right. um, uh, who disagreed. Uh, two, that uh, President uh, George of Kansas City and also uh, President uh, Rosengren of Boston, they, they did not want to cut. And actually, Rosengren came out today with a paper uh, and basically cited, uh, uh, we're kind of making money so cheap right now that you're seeing um, kind of a lot of uh, leverage being put in the system and potentially bad loans, both on the consumer side, but especially on the corporate side. And how common is that kind of dissent, that kind of disagreement? Uh Three is very rare. Yeah, that's exceptionally high. Exceptionally high. Two is even pretty high. Two is yeah. pretty high. <laughs> you, you could always get like uh, the former um, Minnesota uh, coach Lacarda. He would always kind of dissent, but he, since he did it all the time, the market kind of ignored that. To have three, especially after two, were against. But then President Bullard uh, also dissented, but he wanted. 50 basis points. He wanted more. So, so we found the Goldilocks option. We've got right. some people say it's too much, some people say it's too yeah. little, so we're probably just right. Is that kind of the consensus? That seems to how the market take it. Right. Uh, but then also within this report, um, we, the, each president pr- uh, gives their projections on, A, their, their economic outlook. And the economic outlook was relatively rosy. Uh, but they also, uh, it's called the dot plot. So they, they all put their dots of where they think the optimal policy rate should be at uh, this year, next year, and the year after it. Uh, and this one showed uh, kind of a, a pretty wide range of views uh for things going forward. So at it, we had uh, five members that thought that the FOMC should have held the previous range of two, two to two and a half, or two and a quarter. Uh, five proved of today's 25 basis points, but see rates remaining steady through the rest of the year, and seven favored at least one more uh, rate cut this year. So while the markets are kind of calm right now, and we're happy with what they did, the Fed is going to have a 
I wouldn't necessarily say difficult time, but their, their communication strategy is going to be key in terms of keeping uh, market expectations. Market in the expectations. Right place. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. With with such a divided committee, and very uh, Chair Powell and his subsequent press conference provided very little insight into the outlook. It was. It seemed deliberately opaque. I, well, in in some ways, it was it was a pretty good performance. Honestly, he uh, he hit the ball right down the fairway. As Brendan said, he did exactly what markets expected. There wasn't uh, clarity on the on the future trajectory, and even if he'd tried to make it. Clear, Clear with the committee so split, it's it's right. it's a pretty opaque situation. Talking about data dependence and you know taking every meeting as it comes over the next few months. So the markets basically just after wobbling initially, uh, they reverted back to their base case, which is pricing in roughly one more twenty five basis point rate cut by year end, and then continued cuts into next year up to two more 25 basis point cuts uh, by sort of spring and then later next year. Yeah. Now, that's not consistent with the Fed's long range, but, you know, certainly in the in the near term, the, you know, 50-50 odds of, uh, of another cut in October, that's well within kind of what Jay Powell was talking about in, in terms of taking, you know, taking these risks as they come. So I, I, I was thinking about this, getting ready for this conversation last night, and I had one of those kind of wake up in the middle of the night moments where I can't help but wonder we're at we're at we're in such a long, historically speaking, expansion. Yep. Slow, slow initially, but very, very long. There's zero and steady. Basically, we've been steady. growing about two percent, and every you know quarter unemployment comes down. And there's, there's very little that can be done at this point on the fiscal side if there is a downturn. There's not room for more tax cuts, really. There's probably not room for a massive new spending package, unless you buy into the idea that money is now so cheap that we're being foolish not Yeah, well, that. this is actually a question that we should ask you, because markets are actually relatively optimistic about the odds of, uh, of maybe some fifth, uh, fiscal spending, especially on the, um, on the con- um, infrastructure. infrastructure side. And then there's been a couple of, uh, of proposals, one to uh, index capital gains to inflation, um, and then there's another talk of a, you know, a middle-class tax cut. So Wall Street's kind of excited. Yeah, I mean, I think that all of this is, is predicated on the, the political reality that the the bright light on the president in the president's record is the economy, right? Whatever you think about his yeah. his boorishness or his foreign policy or various other things, courts, etc., you know he gets high marks on the economy. The economy is continuing to grow, re- uh, record unemployment, and if so, if we start seeing a dip or evidence of a dip, um, and there's not much that the Fed can do at this point, you know we're talking about fairly fine corrections. He's He's not going to be able to get anything substantial through Congress next year, not in an election year, not with Democrats desperate to uh, replace him in the White House. So he's starting to look at these things like index and capital gains and not only wondering, is this something we can do to goose the economy, but is this something we can do through an executive order without congressional action? I think the possibility of a of a real substantial infrastructure package is kind of a 2021 thing. I think yeah. that's something that, you know, if you're, look, if you're a newly elected president, either re-elected Trump or uh, newly elected Democratic. I think that's an important point. You're looking for a big... Especially on the infrastructure side. If you're looking for a big win on domestic policy, you want one thing that you can get through what will most likely be a Democratic House and most likely be a Republican Senate. 
that's something that you can do that would be big and good. And, you know, the, the problem with infrastructure, as always, is how do you pay for it? Everyone everyone loves infrastructure. Everyone wants new roads and bridges and go to ribbon cuttings and tell their constituents how much <laughs> they're helping reduce their commutes and, and all right. of that. But the gas tax hasn't been raised in quite some time. It's a declining source of revenue, and there's not a great alternative. But well, we could um, do the, the 100-year bond. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they uh, just uh, stand up an infrastructure bank, have them issue bonds, have the Fed buy it, boom, free infrastructure. <laughs> you know, we're, we're could mint a trillion dollar coin and just, and just yeah. get to the treasury and pay down. No, uh, but that sounds debt. funny. But John and I were at a meeting with a bunch of Wall Street participants, and that question came up. You know, it's, and it wasn't a funny question; it was a serious. You know, could we do this? So. Yeah, yeah, it's it really is, uh, and certainly we're hearing more from the Europeans about the potential for a little bit of fiscal loosening from Germany. We got yeah, some we got that today. Some yeah. indications from Germany. It was a little bit mixed. Right. Uh, yeah, talk about but, that. Talk about Angela Merkel and what what she said overnight, and kind of what that means. Right. Yeah. It's the the missing piece of the puzzle in Europe is so obviously fiscal, right. and the space is the headroom for Germany to do something is so blatantly clear, and the the economic outcomes are much worse. You know, right now we're seeing European Germany could well be in a recession right now, yeah, right. and all of the the only institution that has answered the urgent call for easing has been the European Central Bank, and that's taken their monetary it was policy run by into, Italia. Yeah, into really extremes. <laughs> they just cut to negative half a percentage point last week. Which, which we but, ruled out, right? We, we the, Our Fed has said no negative. That's what Jay Powell was very explicit on, and, you know, round of applause from, from me uh, on that one. I think it was, you know, it was there was no ambiguity. He said, it, we, we've we looked at that. It's not right for us. And, you know, when you look at the track record of negative interest rates yeah. in Europe and Japan, you can't really look at that and say, boy, I that's envy what right. that's achieved. And the only reason that's come growth, up is right? because the president is jealous that, and, and you know, he <laughs> borrows a lot of money in his right. former career. Right. So if he could borrow negative, you're like, that'd be awesome. The only reason you ever get to negative rates is so, something went terribly, terribly wrong. Right. It, it's not something that we would ever be talking about except for the president tweeting and criticizing it and putting it on the, the front page of the news. Well, and I guess that's my question. Is if it, given, given this long expansion, given the, the relative lack of options on the, on the fiscal side and, and the fairly low rates, historically speaking, when we hit the next bump, are we not in danger of it being worse, the next recession being worse, because we have so so few tools left in the toolbox to deal with it? Right, and that's one of the arguments for why the Fed may want to pause here a little bit, uh, keep a little bit of dry powder just in case we do get a downturn. Now, obviously, as Brendan mentioned, St. Louis Fed President Bullard is on the other side of that, saying right. let's be proactive and make sure we cushion, you know, get in front of these risks before they materialize, before it's too late. Now, that's uh, that's not necessarily where the rest so the committee, the big split in the committee is all, they're all over the place. So, you know, if if over the next couple of meetings, they decide that really they are going to wait here at 50 basis points, cumulative cuts, half a percent, um, and they, and they, are trying to communicate to the market that they really are done for now. That's right. going to be a big challenge. This Fed has right now a lot of credibility on the dovish side. If they signal that they're going to ease, the market yeah. gives them 120% credit. Right, <laughs> they right. price it in and then some. Right. But whenever they've been trying to pull the reins back in recent months, the market hasn't given them full credit for that. Yeah. And so I think and that's that where Jay Powell potential. has had his missteps. Right. So while give him high marks for, for this meeting, he, he basically delivered exactly what the market said and didn't misstate anything, so right. everything was fine. If he then come 
they decide we're not going to do it in the in the fall. That communication is not going to be well received by the market, and we have to see whether a he has the ability to communicate it, and b whether they have the backbone to actually try to follow through, or is the market going to be down five percent and they say, "Oh, sorry, well, we'll, we'll give you what you want." Particularly with the president tweeting up a storm, yeah, and sure, I mean, yeah. he's not going to be happy about that. Yeah, and if the Fed is really data dependent, what data are they talking about? Right. Chair Powell has downplayed the labor market strength and a lot of the other strong parts of the economy. Is it going to be very specific points? Yeah. And specifically in this, they, they talked about a low inflation as a reason. Um, right. Next week, we're going to get the uh, the PCE, the core PCE price index, and that's going to be at 1.8% year over year with 2% their target. So it's kind of hard, hard to, make to, to make the argument. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this is time for us to take a, a quick break. And coming up, we'll have a crude conversation about oil. Are you or do you know a college student graduating this coming year? HPS is hiring. If you're interested in politics and public affairs and want to work in an engaging and fast-paced environment, be sure to check out HPS's entry-level associate and analyst program. Go to hamiltonplacestrategies.com careers or email careers at hamiltonps.com for more information. And we're back. I just wanted to start this this next segment by talking about a story that's it's kind of the dog that didn't bark in some ways. The, the, the attack on Saudi oil facilities and the relatively muted market reaction. I mean, I, I, growing up in the, in the 80s or 90s, the idea of maintaining the supply of Saudi oil in the world market was a key American national security po- priority. I mean, you had American warships escorting tankers yep. in the Persian Gulf. You had yep. missile strikes with going back and forth with Iranians. And it, it just, you know, the, the war in Kuwait in 91 and the, the massive spikes in prices you saw around uh, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. Anyway, I was just amazed that, like, I pulled up to the Exxon the next day and gas prices weren't, you know, double or triple or some sort of huge reaction to to this pretty substantial damage to critical Saudi oil infrastructure. Why was it so why was it so limited? It it is it is absolutely remarkable and uh, we'll we'll get into the fundamentals but first the, the you know the point you made about how this this very muted reaction. I mean, sitting in Tehran, they must be looking at this and saying, "What do we have to do?" Right. <laughs> right, right. And you've got to think the point of this was to cause economic pain to the west, right? right? Yeah, we were sort of joking earlier we were like in Tehran they should wear a t-shirt that said, "I took out half of Saudi Arabia's <laughs> oil capacity and all I got was $65 a barrel. It's crazy to think that that's, I mean, I'm not a geopolitical expert or anything, but if you're thinking about the balance of power against the U.S. and Iran, oil prices, I mean, if those are tame under these circumstances, that's taking their queen off the chessboard, I would imagine. Uh, But there are obviously people that know it better than I did. Certainly after the attacks over the weekend, everybody in financial markets was focused laser-like on the opening of crude trading futures on Sunday night. And it was, you know, the <laughs> the little betting before, I bet it's going to go up 20%. Right, I right. bet prices are going to be up 15%. At the open, they were up 20%. It was a big, huge pop, and they settled down right away. And yep. they basically continued to slide. Uh, certainly that first day being up, uh, you know, it was about $7 a barrel. Uh, and putting, but still that was only above, for Brent crude, only above $70 a barrel for just a fleeting minute and then it slowly descended and obviously the the Saudi officials came out subsequently well uh, President Trump obviously gave 
uh, you know, signals, signals like the locked and loaded uh, right. signal, but tempered which, it with. Which, which his administration later explained meant that we had American domestic production <laughs> and therefore locked and loaded is a clear metaphor for American domestic energy production. Did you guys not get that the first time? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was, I felt, you know, crystal clear. Yeah. And, this, and putting the guys ready yeah. to go. <laughs> and putting the strategic oil reserve open for, uh, open to tap for, for, the spro. Tap it. Yeah, that, that was, that was part of it. The Saudis came out and gave uh, what seemed like wildly optimistic timelines <laughs> for recovery. But if you're trading oil markets, oil, oil responded to that when they came out and said, we're going to be back online 100% by the end of the month. Oil prices kept falling and settling. Now, there were some subsequent reports that maybe Saudi has have been a little over-optimistic on some of these, and we've gotten some uh, back and forth in oil prices, but still, we're barely $5 higher than we were last Friday before right. these attacks. And that is, I, I think, a testament to the the downward forces that we've seen on oil prices and shale supply, the, sh- the gushing supply from U.S. shale producers is certainly a persistent headwind. Um, and then, you know, the other factor has been concerns about demand, concerns right. about growth. Right. Uh, and and that's uh, that's been the other downward pressure, and and obviously geopolitics and OPEC <laughs> are pushing pushing it up, and we've we've caught oil in a pretty comfortable range here, uh, despite the big pressures on either side of it. Well, that's, it certainly has pretty substantial impact for the politics of the region and, and the national security priorities there. It's a lot a lot different than what we're used to. Yeah, and ironically, the big story that kind of came out and where the, the stress showed up what was not in the oil markets and not in the, uh, in the overall economy, but rather uh, in the U.S. Uh, kind of short-term funding markets, which is a, a little wonky place, and it's, it's kind of where, you know, banks and uh, corporations uh, lend to each other. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, this was the, the big story from the oil was actually this stress because what happened was um, in mid-month corporations have to pay taxes so you know there's less money going around right uh, you also had a situation uh, where the, the Treasury had a lot of issuance um, and also with we're, we're trying to um, figure out what we're going to do with Freddie and Fannie and the GSE. So they've been a, a much uh, smaller player in lending short term. Uh, but then what happened was um, on Monday morning, the Saudis pulled a, a ton of money from uh, our U.S. money market funds because they were going to pay to you know, keep things stable in Saudi Arabia. So over overnight, uh, when we woke up on Monday morning, kind of the front end of, of the lending curve went bonkers. And what happened was... Um, what, what does bonkers look like? I want to, uh, oh, this, these are the lowest rates. It's just, you know, it, it's it's very low risk uh, cash management kind of lending. And the rates went to like spiked like 8%, 10%. Huh. Yeah, it was from crazy. like basically 0%, zero percent or 1%. Okay. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the, the Fed has a couple tools. One is uh, they, they to keep the uh, Fed funds rate where in that 25 basis point band that I was talking about, they they pay interest on uh, excess reserves that the banks hold. So banks have to have capital, uh, you know, to, in case they have losses. So uh, the Fed will pay interest on it. So at this uh, meeting on Wednesday, the Fed actually. Um, 
lowered the uh, interest on excess reserves a little more than 25 basis points. They did 30. That helps kind of anchor that. And, and, and it, it's supposed to do that by giving the banks less incentive um, to, to, basically less incentive to uh, put money with the Fed. With the Fed. Okay. Yeah. And it, They'd rather it, them. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it's supposed to, you know, make it more attractive for them to lend in these funding markets. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, the New York Fed uh, markets desk cranked it up and started offering uh, liquidity through what they call repo operations, basically cash for they you know you do an exchange yeah. of a security for cash yeah. with the New York it, Fed. It creates more. So you as say J P Morgan can lend the the Fed say ten billion dollars. They hand you ten billion dollars, but you still get credit as holding that ten billion dollars in um, in, in reserves. reserves. Yeah. So it kind of creates ten billion dollars. So each day they've been doing seventy five billion dollars. Uh, and that just literally pumps money into the system that didn't technically exist the, the day before. Uh, so it's a little wonky, but it, it, the, the the big main story is it's worked. Right. Uh, as of today, uh, rates are back to where they should be. And the other and the other thing is these are obviously vital funding markets, the cash management markets. Right. Uh, date, you know, huge numbers, uh, uh, huge huge volumes every day. Uh, but at the same time, even though this was quite volatile, it really didn't spill over into broad risk no, sentiment. Not at all. It's still pretty esoteric, mm-hmm. and it didn't, you know, and also didn't spill over into longer dated lending. It right. was just, it was just a very, very narrow window. Yeah. Of course, if it had gone on unaddressed, then clearly it would have had you know much yep. much greater impact. But uh, the the markets were really looking for the Fed to come in with uh, you know obviously these injections of cash are temporary. Uh, the IOER, uh, it's probably just a tweak, and it may not resolve the whole problem if they have this going forward. And so there was a sense that it may have to do a, you know, a standing um, liquidity injection facility, or even go back to asset purchases, Ooh. which are yeah permanent open market yes. operations. So what you know looks to the it's a little hard to distinguish from QE yeah. quantitative easing asset yeah. purchases and when you think about it it's you know quantitative easing used to be a an extraordinary accommodation tool and now we might need a maintenance dose it's, right that it seems, seems like yeah. a, it seems like we're getting into a very different space than we're than we're used to yeah well as a communication guy how would you go out and explain that to the broader populace I, I the difference come, between the expansion the normal expansion of the balance sheet and quantitative easing <laughs> i would call it yeah i would call it something anything other than qe yes. we, we 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 need to and i want you guys to invent the least interesting term possible for this and use five or six words if you have to yeah. but we're, we're yeah. gonna maybe an acronym yeah, is good what we wind up with yeah. but not not even one with enough vowels so i want like a i want a four or five consonant yeah. acronym that couldn't become a word exactly yeah. exactly Let's so it stays it obscure that's right liquidity whippets yeah. and, uh, and, and and while you guys work on that i guess uh, we're going to take another quick break. We'll be back shortly. This year, HPS is celebrating its 10th anniversary. Since HPS was founded in 2009, nearly 200 talented employees have contributed to all that we are today. Be sure to check out HPS Insight on Twitter and use the hashtag HPS10 for more on the anniversary. And we're back. We uh, wanted to start off this last segment here talking about some interesting news out of Federal Express this week. Yeah, it's not earnings season, but FedEx came out with uh, their sort of out of phase uh, first quarter earnings results, and uh, by by all measures, they really looked bad, and uh, they missed earnings expectations, and they guided much lower through the rest of the year. They, which means they they 
warned that profits were going to be lower than the analyst estimates uh, that were out, that were currently outstanding. It was so, a very gloomy, very so gloomy that's, outlook. That's not fuel prices, obviously, since based on the last conversation. Is this uh, is this <laughs> Amazon's new delivery fleet? Is this other well, competition? The, the president's reform of the postal service? Yeah, well, the ongoing breakup with Amazon was something that management flagged, but they certainly uh, also put the spotlight on slowing global growth and mm-hmm. uh, and trade friction. That was, you know, we've the the funny part about the the trade issue is it really hasn't shown up in in you know it's obviously something that corporations mention during earnings season right. a lot but it doesn't it's not uniform some some companies seem to be dealing with it better than others and i think in this case there was some blowback from the analyst community that maybe management was trying to hide behind some of these issues and it was their lack of execution it wasn't necessarily a very kind response from the wall street analyst community but it does speak to the fact that you know we in the last earnings season when we got second quarter earnings we had you know we, we had uh, CSX, the rail, yeah. uh, the rail giant, say that business is terrible and they had a very you know bad outlook for the rest of the year. And then we had JB Hunt, the trucking giant, come out and saying business is great is, is and that, things look fine. Is that because there's so much uncertainty around the trade war and what the president will actually let go into effect and how long this will go long and 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 what kind of resolution there could be either quickly or long term there's just so much uncertainty that's that companies are placing different bets about the impact yes and i guess that i would totally agree with that and certainly the the different uh, you know the different commodities and goods that are covered right. it's not uniform right and so it does have a disparate impact and obviously some companies have the ability you know more nimble supply chains or whatever it is it's it's very difficult to, it was one of the reasons why the you know broadly speaking the trade war risk was so hard to price in through 2018 because t- un, un, you know unpicking these really dense supply lines and the finding the impact through each of them is just really hard so everybody had to kind of wait for corporate management to come out and tell us and they haven't told us a really unified story yet FedEx however has given us the, well, the given us the negative uh, side of things so. and as and as soon as they get on the same page I imagine we'll get one more tweet to upend the whole apple cart one more time <laughs> right um, well let's get make sure we get through uh, what we're looking for in the next week yeah nothing too groundbreaking but um, we do get a um, Manufacturing PMIs, both for the Eurozone and the U.S., which is that's where we focus on this exact uh, issue. If it's going to show up in the data for the, the trade war, this is where it shows up. The PMS, a uh, purchasing manager for, uh, I am acronym challenged, yes. and so <laughs> purchasing managers indexes are PMIs. And we've seen man- global the global aggregated manufacturing PMI is in contractionary territory. Right. Yes, now. global. Yeah, and, and actually, the the ones in the U.S. just started going. Fifty is the the denominator between expansion or contraction, and and we're right around there now for the first time. So where that, we used to be up in the sixties. So this could be kind of a flashing red light if if it has been, comes yeah. in. Yeah even lower. Right. And also, uh, the global data uh, in the last month or so has kind of rebounded. So okay. the, the risk now, uh, I, I suppose there's maybe too much optimism uh, that things are uh, really accelerating. So that will be a focus. We'll also get a, a little glimpse into the German um, economy with both uh, surveys uh, on uh, the corporation side, but also the consumer. 
Uh, on Thursday, we get second quarter GDP revisions. So mm -hmm. it's the final uh, revision, which shouldn't be too market moving. It, it's kind of settled there around 2% the last uh, couple of revisions. And that's right. what's expected this time also. Uh, but the big one is, I kind of mentioned earlier, it's the US uh, Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. And this is what the Fed focuses on for their uh, dual mandate of uh, full employment and also price stability. So the, the one that they focus on is, and is the core, where they take out the um, food and uh, energy, which can be a little more volatile. Right, right. Uh, so they target 2%, and right now we are at 1.6%. That's on a yearly basis. Uh, but kind of when you extrapolate um, from the the other measurements, uh, the the market's expecting that to go up to uh, 1.8 percent, which right. is getting back within spitting distance of uh, of their mandate, while they're still citing low inflation as a reason for. Right. For so coming. you think this could influence future Fed actions if it's they're starting okay. to see? Yeah. And then more importantly, they said they're data dependent. So right. we'll see actually if they are data dependent. Yeah, that's a really good point. In the past, we've seen uh, data come out like even non-farm payrolls come out really strong, and the market hasn't reacted because. Jay Powell has told the market, "You shouldn't react to this because we're not reacting to right, it." Right, uh, right, and uh, and so what? Yeah, the the certainly the the this will be a big focus next week. All right. Well, it sounds like we've got plenty to look forward to and some interesting data right on the horizon. Tony will be back next Friday here on the Macrocast with our usual guests, and uh, in the meantime, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share. Find more from Hamilton Place Strategies at hamiltonplacestrategies.com and follow Tony Fratto on Twitter, at Tony Fratto. Learn more about John Fagan, Brendan Walsh, and the work they do at Markets Policy Partners by visiting marketspolicy.com.